We're going to be in Matthew 26 tonight. You want to turn your Bible, turn in your Bibles there? But we're going to begin with a little bit of church history. I'm excited about it. Me too. The year was 451 AD, over 400 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And about 500 bishops gathered in what is modern-day Turkey for the Council of Chalcedon. Most of these bishops were from the surrounding kind of Greek regions, and they gathered at the request of the Eastern Roman Emperor Marcion, or Marcion, to, and I quote, end disputations and settle the true faith more clearly and for all time. Good luck. About 125 years before this, uh, a similar group of bishops gathered at the Council of Nicaea to kind of defend the divinity of Jesus, to recognize and establish that Jesus was fully God. And over the next like 100 years or so, a number of these church leaders would emphasize that so much that it began to distort the understanding of Jesus's humanity. So they wanted to protect Jesus's true divinity that they maybe ended up kind of failing to acknowledge his true and full humanity. So in the year 451 in Chalcedon, these bishops met to address the teachings of a few theologically rogue bad boys of the fourth and fifth centuries, if you will. Um, if you need, we have some pregnant people, if you need baby names, Arius, Apollinarius, Nestorius, and Eutychus, you're welcome. Eutychus. Yeah, Eutychus. Um, Arius was alive well before this, but his doctrine and belief was kind of resurfacing at the time of Chalcedon. But he believed that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, uh, couldn't possibly share his divinity with a human. In doing so, in his mind, it would result in two divine beings, and that messed with his monotheism. Um, Apollinarius suggested that uh, Jesus didn't have a truly human mind, but that he was given the divine logos, or the divine mind and spirit combo into, into Jesus' body, and so Jesus didn't exactly have a human mind and therefore wasn't fully human. Nestorius, in order to try to preserve the full divinity and full humanity of Jesus, suggested that they were like two distinct persons that existed in one body, I guess, a human person and a divine person. Eutychus suggested that Jesus' humanity was dissolved into his divinity, like, and I'm quoting, a, a drop of honey which falls into the sea dissolves in it. So some of these uh, these people and their, what we now know as heresies, they've kind of developed over a long time. Some of them took multiple church councils to deal with them, and the doctrines and debates would kind of resurface over a long time. It's also good to know that these guys, um, to my knowledge, they weren't bad men. They purported what we now know as heresies, but they're not bad people. Arius, I believe, affirmed the Nicene Creed. Um, anyways, so things just got sideways for them and took on these false doctrines, particularly for Chalcedon, about the humanity of Jesus. And so it needed to be dealt with. So 500 bishops meeting over the course of a whole month, dealing with four, particularly four unique misunderstandings about the humanity of Jesus. It ended up being um, Pope Leo I, who was actually not in attendance of the council, but he sent a tome to the council, some inscription and his defense and his wordings stuck. 
and it was what the council adopted as truth as regards to the humanity of Jesus. So here's a section of the Tome of Leo. Following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, of one essence with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same of one essence with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects, except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in, these, in the last days for us and for our salvation, the same born of Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. He is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us. That text that we just read is what helped kind of establish what we call now the hypostatic union, the merging of the human and divine nature of Jesus all in one package. Um, in spite of what all those present at the Council of Chalcedon did and this um, section from Pope Leo, in spite of all those beautiful words and in spite of how well they have taken root for us now, we understand these things, um, the humanity of Jesus is still, to this day, I think, very overlooked. Now, as good Protestants, we don't like deny his full humanity anymore, but I think we don't really understand or think on just how human he was. We'll point to passages in the Gospels where Jesus was like tired or hungry. And we're like, oh, see, he was tired. He was hungry. He was really like a human, see? Um, meanwhile, we'll go on and on about how Jesus was the divine son of man who would heal people's diseases and cast out demons. And we talk about the word of God being made flesh. And um, I think that we're meant to see that it is much deeper than that. I think that's what the 500 bishops in Chalcedon wanted for us to understand that Jesus was fully, truly human in every sense, just like you and me, except for our sin. I bring this up because tonight's passage only makes sense when we remember that Jesus was, in fact, human, a man, with desires and needs and thoughts and emotions. He wasn't this, like, God slash human robot who had no choice in what he did while he was here on the earth. So not only does the passage tonight, um, in my mind, doesn't make sense without a good understanding of his humanity, but I think the passage tonight is probably one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus's humanity that I hope, as we look at it, can remind us uh, of the friend and the companion and the ally that we have in our very human savior. So let's read chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, 
And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let's pray. Jesus, would you give us a life-changing glimpse of your humanity that we see in the scripture. Would you help us to see you as you truly are? And would it do something inside of us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at verses 36 through 38. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, James and John. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So we left off and Jesus and his disciples had had a Passover meal. He had warned them, someone's gonna betray me. He said, all of you are going to flee and desert me when things get really tough. And then he told Peter, you are going to deny me three times. They leave their meal, they go outside somewhere on the Mount of Olives, likely in some type of olive orchard, a place called Gethsemane. All the disciples go with them on, their, on this little short trip, and then when they get to the spot Jesus wants to pray, he leaves the eight disciples there, and then he goes a little farther out with Peter, James, and John. And then verse 37 says that he began to be sorrowful and troubled, but everything that I've read on this passage says that those, at least how the NIV translates it, translates it, is a very weak way of understanding what Matthew is trying to describe. Other scholars have translated this as that Jesus was in terrible distress and misery or crushed with anguish. And then Jesus says he's so overwhelmed with his misery that he could die. And then he does something that um, I have overlooked every time that I've read this. Uh, maybe you have too. He told his friends, stay with me. He wanted his disciples, the Peter, James, and John, with him. Like he moved away from them a little bit to go pray, but they were in close enough to hear what he was praying. So in these brutal moments of Jesus' life, he wanted companions. He wanted friends with him. The savior of the world, the king of the universe, when facing down this job that he had to do, when he was feeling the anguish about what was to come, he wanted the company of his friends. 
I think that's a good picture of the humanity of Jesus. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This verse, we'll probably spend most of our time on it, is incredibly profound. It's very easy for us to overlook Jesus' humanity in this particular verse. We know, we know now he had to die. He predicted it multiple times to his disciples, saying the Son of Man is gonna be delivered over and crucified on the third day rise. It happened three or four times leading up to this. So what is Jesus doing when he says, is there any other way? In his prayer, he's asking is there, if there's any other way. Is he being poetic or facetious? Is he asking a genuine question? Does he already know the answer or is he ask, actually hoping for another possibility? I think it's easy for us to overlook him asking that question and, and like it almost becomes like a fake humanity. Like he didn't really want another way out. He was just saying that this is wrong and I think it does a disservice to his humanity. It doesn't acknowledge the fullness of what he endured for us, that Jesus in this moment, I think, began to truly suffer for what was coming. He was staring down the cup of God's wrath and judgment against sin and genuinely asked his father, if there's any other way, I would like that. The cup is a metaphor we don't use anymore. The closest thing we have is we talk about like our lot in life, um, but that's not even the same. I think the best image we have for what Jesus is likely thinking about when he says this is from Psalm 75, verse eight. It says, in the hand of the Lord, is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. The cup is the wrath of God against wickedness in the world. And Jesus knows that he is about to experience something far worse, um, far more complex than just the pain of crucifixion. He's going to have the sins of the entire world crushing on his human soul, bearing the judgment and the wrath of God on our behalf. And he will, in some way that we don't understand, it makes us kind of uncomfortable theologically, but he's gonna have his relationship with the Father broken in some way or severed. He'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I believe Jesus knows that's what's coming on this, on this path that he's looking down. And genuinely asks, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. If there's another way we can provide salvation and deliverance for humanity, can we please take option B? So I don't want us to miss, miss this. It's gonna sound weird, but uh, in a sense, Jesus didn't want to do what he did for us. Now, he offered himself up willingly and in Hebrews, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, so he did. He wanted to provide salvation and deliverance for us. But in this moment, in his humanity, in his agony, in his despair, he asked for another way. And then he ends his prayer with the sentiment that he tells his disciples to pray with, asking for God's will to be done over and against his own in that moment. Now, this isn't Jesus saying like, ah, never mind, I'm just kidding. 
I know there's no way, there's no other way. This is like a gritty fight through his agony. Please find another way, Father. But if there isn't, I will do what you want. So I'd just like to take a minute and sit with that thought to consider the humanity of Jesus that he longed, desperately longed to be spared from the cup that was his to drink shortly. He asked, legitimately, meaningfully asked for another way. And yet he went through it still for us. Verses 40 and 41. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus goes back to his disciples, finds them asleep. Um, They were experienced fishermen who knew how to work through the night without falling asleep. And yet here here they were failing to provide the thing that Jesus clearly needed and desired was companionship and prayer from his closest friends. But even in this moment, Jesus gives a word of understanding of what it's like to be human. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. On this verse, a Bible scholar, R.T. France, says that here in, in Matthew 26, unlike in Paul, the flesh is not so much evil or in itself opposed to the will of God, but represents human weakness over against the desire of the inner self to do the will of God. Initial enthusiasm and professions of loyalty too often succumb to human lethargy or fear of the consequences. I find that to be very true. Jesus knows what it's like to be human, and he knows that his friends want to do right by their rabbi, but their humanity is just making it hard. What's interesting is he he instructs them to pray so that they won't fall into temptation, which I think is likely Jesus referring to the temptation to abandon him when this all starts to fall apart, when he's arrested, which is exactly what happens. They fail to pray with him, and they're unprepared uh, for the moment when um, they come to arrest him. And so they flee. Verse 42 through 44. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. So in the second prayer, we see that Jesus seems to have acknowledged God's answer. There is no other way. He's like, if indeed it's not possible for there to be another way, then let your will be done. He returns to the disciples and finds them asleep again. I believe in Luke's gospel, it says something like the disciples were sleeping from grief or sleeping from sorrow. So maybe they just, they weren't just tired, but maybe they were in severe emotional distress too and they responded by falling asleep. One thing that's interesting, I'm just speculating here. Do you ever wonder why Jesus keeps going back? to them. Like, I don't know that he's just trying to, like, check on them to make sure that they're obeying, maybe. But he's, like, he's in the fight of his life. He's staring down this, like, terrible thing he's about to go through. I don't know that he's like, I better check on the dudes again. Um, I, I think he's probably trying to go back and receive their company and their support and their prayer. So what a beautiful picture of, uh, Jesus' humanity, again, in these agonizing moments for him, repeatedly keeps going back to be 
with his friends. Finally, verse 45, 46. He returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He comes back and he's like, I can't believe it, you guys are still asleep. But he's like, it's time to get up. The prayer time is over. The betrayer is here and the Son of Man is gonna be delivered into the hands of sinners. And when he says, rise, let's go, it's not an instruction to run, but to go meet the people that were there to arrest him. Next week, we will look at, um, do a separate message on the arrest of Jesus, but I wanna end our text here because I wanna just focus on what, what we've seen so far, what's been revealed about Jesus in this garden scene. So I think in order for this passage to sink in, if it hasn't already started to, um, to like do something in us, in our spirit, I think we need to maybe try to visualize what this might have looked like. Um, and maybe I'm the only one that does this, but I think that I have defaulted to imagining Jesus like serenely praying, kneeling at a rock or like against a tree, like hands lifted to heaven, a calm and serene face, Lord, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, just kidding, I know there's no other way. So what you want, God, not what I want, it's all, it's all fine. Ah, silly disciples, asleep again. Um, that's like how I, I default to thinking about this scene. But let's visualize what's actually happening in the text. Jesus, in terrible distress, distress crushed with anguish, literally feels like he could die in this moment. He's in such agony, he asks his disciples to stay with him, just to be physically near him and pray with him. I kind of think it's like when a, when a person is just in unbearable emotional pain, they don't need a friend to say something, but just to be physically near them. And then Jesus falls with his face to the ground. Luke tells us that his sweat was like drops of blood. So whatever's happening, we don't have a, a calm and serene and settled Jesus, we have an unsettled, bloody, dirty, weeping, sick and anxious face in the ground overcome with sorrow, Jesus, who just needed friends physically near him to be with him and pray with him while he asked his father for another way to do what they were supposed to do. So can we just take a moment to take in the humanity of Jesus? and think about what he went through in this moment. So I'll bring your attention to two things um, that I think this picture of Jesus can teach us um, today. He was crushed with anguish in his father's presence, and we can too. It's easy to remember scriptures like Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not for I am with you. Philippians 4.6, don't be anxious about anything. 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love. 1 Peter 5.7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. James, consider it pure joy when you go through trials of various kinds. The scriptures are thrown around often and they are good and true and helpful. But if we're not careful, it can seem like the goal of the Christian life or like a mark of maturity is to mitigate or to not have big, strong, sad feelings in your life. 
But that is just not true, and it doesn't work. It doesn't acknowledge how hard life is sometimes. Sometimes it is too much to handle. Sometimes we are undone, and that doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong. That way of thinking also doesn't consider Jesus' example here in the garden. He was in the depths of despair and misery and was in the presence of his father at the same time and wasn't sinning while he was doing so. And so, if and when, and I pray this doesn't happen to you, but if and when you find yourself face down in the dirt, overcome with misery and crushed with anguish, you find yourself in good company, Jesus gets it and has been there and actually can be there with you in those moments. Not only does Jesus give us the permission to anguish with our face in the ground and in the presence of God, but he gives us the example of choosing God's will in that moment through our anguish. Through Jesus' misery, he says, not my will, but yours. I think that's our goal too, to desire and accept God's will even in the midst of the ways that we suffer. The second thing, I don't have a succinct um, quote to put on the screen, so I'm just gonna hopefully make sense of it and talk about it. Jesus genuinely wanted there to be another way. Meaningfully asked the Father for a different way to accomplish what they were doing. He wanted another way that didn't involve him taking the cup of God's justice on himself, the cup that would involve not just the, the pain of his crucifixion, but the shame of it and the separation from his father, the unimaginable anguish of bearing the weight and judgment for the sins of the whole world. Again, Jesus definitely, clearly chose of his own will to go to the cross. He says in John, no one takes my life, I lay it down of my own accord. Um, but we have to hear as truth and as legitimate the words of Jesus in this garden and accept, again, there's an element that Jesus did not want to go through with this. And yet he chose it. He had to endure it. He had to find the courage to face this on our behalf for us. So when you think about what Jesus went through on the cross, the things that we kind of normally think about, his crucifixion and the pain and the suffering that he went through, the humiliation. I think about that, plus that he saw this in this moment. I don't want to do this if there's any other way. Does that not make you infinitely more grateful for what he did? He was not born a robotic savior who didn't have any feelings about what he would have to endure. He was a human, just like you and me, and chose to go through with this betrayal and the shame and the pain of crucifixion and the indescribable burden of being the sacrificial lamb, the lamb upon whom the sins of the whole world are placed. So our Good Friday and our kind of Easter season, we, again, we, we seem to generally reflect on Jesus enduring the pain of the cross, and rightfully so. But this season, I would draw your attention to the gift Jesus gave us in this garden moment when he agonized over what was coming. He didn't just physically hurt for you. He didn't just die for you. He anguished 
and suffered in his soul for you and for me, experienced a crushing anxiety for us. I've been thinking about this for the last few weeks, trying to like think of examples in my life, and I, I couldn't think of any. Um, but this morning, I thought about my dad. Um, he's had cancer twice now, two different unrelated kinds, and praise God, he has um, beaten it both times. But this last time, it was the treatment that did a number on him. Because he had had cancer before, um, I think he knew a bit about what was coming. So, and he had also, he was able to talk to some friends who had gone through the same type of cancer that he had and what the treatment would be like. Um, and so I think he saw in multiple stages of his journey, he was facing down multiple surgeries and chemo and radiation, a colostomy bag, a huge and long disruption to his life, full of pain and extreme discomfort. And that doesn't, uh, make a big deal out of it, doesn't talk about it a whole lot, but you could see the anxiety and the fear of what he had to deal with. And it made, it made his life really bad for a long time. I might even call it, from what I could see on the outside, a, a crushing and depressive anxiety over that season of his life, going through the treatment. But he endured it so that he could live. He endured the pain so that I could have my dad and so my kids could have their bapa and my mom could have her husband. Jesus knew what he was facing. He, he dreaded it. He put his face in the ground. He was covered in bloody sweat, needed disciples, his disciples just physically near him to pray plead for another way, and yet he chose God's will and endured for us. So if you're willing, I'd just ask you to think about your life, maybe what, what your most severe moment of dread has been, something looming over you that you did not want to face, wanted to avoid, or maybe you need to think about a time where you've had to watch someone else facing down their worst moments unable to fix it for them. Jesus knows that feeling. He endured the worst possible version of it for us so that we could be saved. And then, Jesus gives us his spirit. When we accept his sacrifice as on behalf of our life, when we accept and acknowledge and place our faith in Jesus as our King. We receive his Holy Spirit so that he can be with us in our suffering. Like the disciples were supposed to be with Jesus. Jesus won't fall asleep. He will be near. In fact, scripture tells us the Spirit intercedes for us, always praying for us. So I'd like to end um, by reading and just reflecting on two scriptures from the book of Hebrews. Um, so Sam and Alicia, you guys can come up. We'll worship in a moment. Um, let's look at Hebrews chapter five, verses seven through nine. 
During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look upon just how human you were, as we see it in the garden, would we take solace knowing that you know what it's like to be us. You are tempted in every way that we are. And so as we go through our life, as we struggle and fail, as we go through things that cause us anguish and sorrow, would you help us to find comfort in the fact that you felt those as well. You understand what that's like and you offer your presence and your comfort to us. So Jesus, I ask for that comfort and that presence now in this very room for anyone here who is in some type of anguish or discomfort, someone that has been pleading, Lord, if there's another way if this situation could go any other way, would you please let it happen? God, we ask for your will, and mostly we ask that your presence would provide comfort and strength and courage. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.